Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Bible in a Year podcast. We are so thrilled that you are here joining us. I'm your host, Jay Smith. With me today, as we finish chapter 10 of the Gospel of Mark, is Jimmy Doyle and Travis Bruno. Gentlemen, we left off with the story of the rich young man. Uh, that was a, a heavy but really, I think, insightful podcast, and I hope that others listen to that. I just encourage you, as we always do, join us, read-scripture.com. We believe that scripture is intended to be read in community. And so take some time to do that, engage with us in those forums. And then in addition to that, if you have any questions, comments, or anything, you can help us as we do these podcasts. We love doing them. Uh, And so this is our fourth podcast in two days uh, dealing with the gospel of Mark. And so let's move on to verse 32. Uh, So we just concluded the story of the rich young ruler at the very end of that. Uh, Jesus tells the disciples that whatever they left, you know, whatever they left, they will receive a hundred times as much homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, all with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. And then verse 31, it says, but many who are first will be last in the first in the last first, which so just kind of put a pin in that statement, because we're going to come back to that reality as a significant part of this last part of Mark chapter 10. But in verse 32, we have the third time that Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. And this is how he says it. They were on the way going up to Jerusalem. Uh, just an important side note. You always go up to Jerusalem. Uh, 99% of the time that they were going to Jerusalem, they were going south uh, but you are always going up to Jerusalem. That's just a fun thing that I learned along my journey in Israel. Jesus was going ahead of them and they were amazed, but those who followed were afraid. He took the 12 aside again and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Look, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be handed over to the chief priests and experts of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him severely and kill him. And yet after three days, he will rise again. Anything from that third uh, prediction of his death and resurrection that that you want to make sure we don't miss either one of you? It's pretty pretty straight out. Yeah, I think it's you know from our previous podcast. Remember that Jesus this Jesus asked the rich young ruler to give up everything, and Jesus is on his path to give up everything. Right, he he is going to lose everything in his in this process of being faithful to God's call to be his servant and. Uh, so that has, it's not just the disciples who are giving up something. It's not just the rich young man who's asked to give up something. Jesus is modeling that he is giving up his own life. Yeah. And then uh, in true disciple fashion, uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, we're in verse 35 now, came to Jesus and said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. He said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, permit one of us to sit on your right hand or at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. You're, are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I experience? They said to him, we are able. Then Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and you'll be baptized with the baptism I experience. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to give. It is for those who, for whom it has been prepared. Now, when the other 10 heard this, they became angry with James and John. Jesus called them and said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded it over them and those in high positions use their authority over them. But it is not this way among you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
That is a substantial passage. Uh, James and John asking boldly, courageously, and sometimes I would assume stupidly uh, for Jesus to do something for them. But I've talked a lot enough. Travis, when you read that passage, come across the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee asking that and Jesus' response, man, what do you ask? What do you question? What do you think? What are your responses? I mean, yeah, the initial is like face palm, like that they would ask this question and like they said to him, grant us, or where is it? Uh, and we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Like, it's not just, hey, can can I ask you a question or can I, but it's like, and we want you to do it. So that boldness is striking to me. Um, but overall, it's, I mean, it's just another one of those examples of the upside downness of the way that Jesus is trying to, to remind us, to teach us and to show us, um, that, you know, and so I try not to like get too overwhelmed with anxiety at like, well, how many ways do I like misinterpret things and I'm doing it completely the wrong way. But, you know, I get like where they're coming from because like they're expecting the Messiah to come and bring a new kingdom and all these things. And so from like the natural context, it should look a certain way for them in their mind. And so that's what they're kind of moving forward towards. And Jesus has to continue to remind them, like, that's not the way. Um, Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And so, like, and this is something, you know, we've talked about before, like the honor-shame culture, which is sort of foreign to us, I think, in the Western world or whatever. But, um, like, that, that is a striking contrast to me, but trying to even picture how much more of a striking contrast that would be for them to hear, like, um, to be the first, you have to like be the last and be the least honored in the way that Jesus just before that, like, you know, is predicting these things that are going to happen to him, like the most disrespectful and rude and shameful things like he's going to endure. And so it's just like, it's just another kind of repeat of that things. The way things are actually going to be is not what you expected. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I said to put a pin in it, but that passage, if you go up there at the end of uh, verse 31, but many who are first will be last in the first in the last first is is the thing that continuously sticks out to me is this reality that the disciples still don't understand really what's going on. Jesus just predicted his death for the third time. And for them, as they're still perceiving Jesus through this lens of a, a messianic savior that was going to come to Jerusalem, this was the time that Jesus, and, and it follows up in, at the, right at the beginning of, of, of chapter 11, as Jesus does his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Like, this is this moment, they're heading to Jerusalem to finally establish the kingdom of God. Uh, over all other kingdoms where Rome will fall and forever Israel will be God's preferred chosen people, nation, all those things. And so it still feels like no matter how many times Jesus says, hey, this is what's ahead of us. And I think Mark is probably using this intentionally. Like Jesus has now said it three times, which is obviously a number that is significant to those who understand the story or know the story of the resurrection. Uh, But in the middle of that is also the part where you have these jockeying for position. This isn't the first time. If you remember just in chapter eight or nine is is on their way. They're arguing about who is the greatest. Jesus overhears and connects them to the heart of kids, you know. So I don't know. I 
I think that Jesus is talking about greatness and power in a way that that is still deeply uh, relevant to the contrasting way the kingdom of God is in comparison to the kingdom of this world. So, Jimmy, what do you what do you think, man? What are some of the things that you love about this passage or don't love? Uh, well, I mean, what, what I love and don't love. I mean, I, I think the hard thing is uh, what we without the spirit working in us, the idea of becoming the servant of everybody doesn't doesn't jive well with most people's nature. Uh, I think there's also questions like I could uh, see some counselors and psychologists reading and hearing these passages going, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't you can't be a servant to everybody like you lose yourself. But I want to say that <clears throat> I, I think what you get a picture of like a sense of in the spirit is that Jesus never loses himself. He gives himself away fully and retains his self-identity. And I think that's the model right? We also think in the opposite way. We think achievement gives us identity. That if I can get that position of power, or if I can have, I'm the important person at the table. The word, one of the words for servant here is diakonos, like a waiter of tables. You should be the one that's waiting on the on people, serving them meals. That's the way it is if you're going to be in the kingdom, not the, not the king that's sitting at the table waiting to be served. But to do that in some way in this wholeness of not losing yourself so that you actually do have a self to serve, a self to give away. Uh, and that's what Jesus does. And I think it's incredible. Like, it's an incredible call. And I think it can only be accomplished through the work of the Spirit. And I don't think it's easy. I think Jesus is struggling in this too, right? We see him struggling more and more. He's talking about the closer he gets to dying, the more he's talking about what he's going to experience. It's almost like he's talking himself through this process. And it has to be super discouraging, as we talked about in a couple of podcasts ago. Like, his disciples just don't get it. They really don't. And it would be really hard, I think. Um, but yeah, it's an upside down kingdom. I mean, Travis has said it and you've said it a lot. Like it's not the kind of kingdom that people would expect. The king comes to serve and die. One of the commentaries I came across as well talks about this, uh, passage in verse 42, Jesus called them and said to them, you know, that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those in high positions use the authority over them as Jesus is making a direct contrast to some of the leaders that would have made the blood boil of many of the disciples, right? The, the, the Herod, uh, the Herod Herodian dynasty, you have the Roman governors and different people out there, um, that are, are the powers that they were trying to overthrow a lot of them, right? Like Simon, the yeah. zealot, we have literal yeah. anti-Roman people that are now, uh, disciples. Most of them would have been. And so just being able to say like, that's how they function. This is how we function and the yeah. serving the tables, man. And then, I think for me, anytime I come across the idea of that, that diakonos is I immediately go to the fact that, that Jesus at the end of his life washes the feet, uh, gives the ultimate example of his power and greatness by giving his life up. And we, we reference this, Jimmy, you referenced this in, I think it was in chapter nine, but the Philippians two passage, you know. God, Jesus knew that we couldn't get to him. And so he took on the form of a servant being found in the form of a human, you know, and being found in the image of man, he, he emptied himself, you know, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Like all of that reality is that's, it's what makes Jesus so contrastingly different also to other, other gods and other, not, not just the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh, which is unique, uh, but beyond that is that his ultimate example of power was 
was giving his life up and serving and washing feet. And it's really, it's like, it's ludicrous. It's a, it is ludicrous, right? It's foolishness. Paul says to the Corinthians, hey, everybody wants, I mean, the Greco-Roman world wants, you know, wisdom and power. The Jewish world wants wisdom and power. But we come preaching Christ crucified. It's foolishness, right? The idea that the, the Savior of the world is, is somebody who was killed by Rome. Uh, and then he says later in Second Corinthians, you know, when Paul's having his own struggles with life and he's praying that God kind of deliver him from whatever these struggles are. And God says, no, I'm not going to take these struggles away from you because my power is made complete in weakness. That when Paul is weak, that's when God's strength can actually be seen. And it's in serving that God's real nature can be seen because God's, God has served creation from the very beginning. That is God's nature. We were made to be like God. Jesus is the image of God according to the New Testament. So we want to see what God-likeness is in this world. It's a servant nature. Uh, just incredible. Yeah. The, the final passage from chapter 10 is the healing of a blind man. So we'll just read it. Uh, they came to Jericho. So on their way up to Jerusalem, came to Jericho, which is kind of, I mean, I don't know if it's a middle point, but roughly a middle space between the Galilee region and Jerusalem. And so they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving. Bart- Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many scolded him to be quiet, but they shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man and said to him, have courage, get up, he is calling you. He threw off his cloak, jumped up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man replied, Rabbi, let me see again. Jesus said to him, go, your faith has healed you. Immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the road. Uh, Travis, when you read this healing story, what stands out at, about it in comparison to maybe other stories we've came across? Um, I, I think again, I see like the desperation that we have seen before with those that have had an ailment or had something that they needed Jesus for. And again, in contrast with people like the rich ruler or rich young man, like that had sufficiency that didn't have need, um, this man in his need calls out to Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And so, you know, it's not like he just approaches or he comes with a question, but he is crying out. Um, and then I, I haven't looked at all of the other examples to compare, but um, it says like immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. And so Jesus allows this man to follow him in some sense. And so I don't know if that's like, I don't know how closely that is or if he just walks behind him, you know, but um, those are two things that, that struck me. Yeah. Jimmy, any, anything? Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say like, uh, we often find these, like, so we had a blind man story in the previous, uh, you know, eight and nine, uh, Bethsaida and in, in Mark eight, Jesus heals the blind man there right after the disciples didn't understand things. They were seeing, but not seeing. And I think again, you have this passage of man. the healing of yeah. Bartimaeus and the disciples still haven't been able to understand things. And James and John asked Jesus, hey, do anything. We, can you do anything we ask from you? And Jesus responds basically back, hey, I'm not sure you can handle this. But this man, Jesus, Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? And uh, I think that Mark sometimes uses these real stories to contrast. You know, th- there is a healing of blindness and a physical blindness and maybe the hopes that this spiritual blindness of his own followers can be healed as well. Like what they need to be asking Jesus is, 
what I need to be asking Jesus, hey, heal me of my blindness. Help me to see things the way that you want me to see. And let me recognize that you are the son of David. And um, and I don't think that's just a metaphor. I don't think Mark's making up this story. I think Bartimaeus was a blind man who was healed. But I think that Mark literarily may be putting these blind man passages in certain places. Because um, a lot of times in ancient literature, spiritual blindness and physical blindness are tied together. Um, and the other thing, just from a human, like a, I'm just thinking, so Bartimaeus joins Jesus at Jericho. They're going to make this ascent up the hill, and he's following Jesus. And starting at chapter 11, we cover one week. From 11 to the end of the gospel is one week of time. Uh, you know, what we would call Palm Sunday to Crucifixion Friday to Resurrection Sunday. And this blind man, the things that he's going to see in following Jesus in that short period of time is probably not what he expected either from from the son of David healing him. Um so, uh, what a thing. And they're about to do this ascent. Like when you go to visit the Holy Land, and everybody should, if you get a chance to, uh, don't pass it up if you get a chance. Uh, you know, they're going to be climbing. They're going up, up, literally going up at this point. They're at the lowest spot on earth. They're at the north end of the Dead Sea. And now they're going to be making this big ascent up to Jerusalem. So there's a struggle in going up and getting there. And uh, this is also the last healing miracle in the Gospel of Mark. This is the last one. So uh, you, there will be other things that are miraculous that happen, but not a healing miracle. So Mark is definitely shifting into a new phase of the story at the end of chapter 10. And you said something, it's a kind of a blur. I think it was a nine, but somebody referred to Mark as a long passion narrative with or a long introduction with the past. To yeah, a, a narrative. passion narrative with a long introduction. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so here we are. So we'll start next week in chapter 11 in, in really the passion week. And so um, I hope you all are enjoying this as much as we are. And if you are, we just encourage you to share this. Uh, somebody out there in your life that you think would grow by engaging with the Gospels uh, with us, we would love for you to do that. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Remember to join us at read-scripture.com. We are in chapter 10. We'll be back with 11 next week. Thank you so much for joining us. Jimmy, Travis, awesome work. Thank you guys so much. And we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.